Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Yimmy Yanlian. Based in Stockholm, Yimmy is an agile coach and self-described bureaucracy therapist, cultural acupuncturist, and visualization magician who helps teams and leaders in their adoption of agile practice and culture. You can follow him on Twitter at Yimmy Yanlian, which I'll, I'll spell out J-I-M-M-Y. J-A-N-L-E-N, and check out his website at visualizationexamples.com. He does videos uh, on the YouTube channel, Crisp Agile Academy, and you can read his blog at blog.crisp.se slash author slash He's the author of a number of LeanPub books, including Decision-Making Principles and Practices, Yimmy Cards, and his best-selling book, Toolbox for the Agile Coach, Visualization Examples, How Great Teams Visualize Their Work. In this interview, we're going to talk about his background and career, professional interests, a little bit about his time working for Spotify, or times working for Spotify, uh, and uh, all his work on visualization, and we'll talk a little bit at the end about his work as a self-published author. So thank you very much for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, I lost my word for this great introduction. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in uh, computer science and software. Uh grew up in the middle of Sweden uh, in a small town, called, small town named Kumla. Uh, and then I at some point early on, I decided I want to develop, uh, I want to be part of creating uh, the amazing graphical effects for the future Star Wars movies. So I decided I need to, that's going to be digital, and that, hence I need to study computer science. I, however, I forgot about that dream somewhere along the, <laughs> along the journey. So I ended up as a uh, consultant, IT consultant, uh, .NET, Microsoft. Uh, so I was a developer for nine, nine eight years, I think, until I stumble upon Scrum for the first time. And that's when I, that was in 2000, 2006, maybe. And how did, you come, how did you come across Scrum? I started working with Siemens. They do all things, uh, tumblers, wind, uh, electricity and gadgets, whatever, uh, or not. And then they also developed software. And at that point in time, they were building this huge, administrative tool system monster for hospitals and when i joined they have just went gone through a grammatical top-down big bang hardcore transformation to agile 2005 so they said we're doing scrum here and i said well, whatever don't talk process with me i'm a developer let just let me code <laughs> Um, processes has never helped me so far. But then I realized something else was going on. This was actually an environment of setting a, a process, a way of working that, that helped me. So then I started to pay attention and then I started to read up on it and that wasn't that much to read back then. But then I got I got blown away and realized the, the power of it. And a few years down the road, I had the opportunity to become a Scrum Master and then I changed assignment. As a consultant, I've always been a consultant all my life. And for the past 10-ish years, uh, I've been primarily doing uh, agile coaching. And for those who might be unfamiliar with some of these terms, um, one way I always like to frame these kinds of discussions is um, software is the foundation on which basically everything in the world is built and done nowadays. Mm. Uh, yes. And so the way that software is built is actually this, you know, it's something that we're, I think, sort of, sort of, as it were, people outside the profession are sort of indifferent to. But actually, you know, if you're wondering why you run into security bugs here or privacy problems there, mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. of it has to do with the way software is built. And we're, we're sort of 
if you think in grand historical terms, still at the very beginning of figuring out how we're going to be doing this. And so just in that, in that context, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. Let's, let's talk first about what Scrum is. Well, uh, Scrum is a simple recipe for how to collaborate in teams, five-ish, five to ten people. So it's a set of simple uh, ceremonies, routines, habits you can have as a team in order to collaborate, uh, think together, plan together, execute together, and deliver together. Uh, but the basis of Scrum is Agile. And for me, Agile is more of a mindset. It's a, it's a way of viewing work. There's many different ways to approach work. And Agile, if you're doing Agile, you subscribe to the belief that Work is best done if we do it in teams, we put ownership of the work and the result to the team, and we give them the biggest possible room to own and make decisions for themselves So, the, as, as a team. And that, that's a belief, uh, and it's still, according to some people at least, an unproven hypothesis, <laughs> even though Agile is taking the world by storm. So if Scrum is... a it's a simple framework for a software development team to do Agile. Agile. For me, Agile is bigger. Agile is, in some sense, a cultural revolution in the workspace because it flips upside down the management, leadership, teamwork, uh, how we conduct and execute on work, and how, how we primarily how, how we learn how to improve. Yeah, and it's and it's rapidly expanding beyond uh, IT and software as well. Yeah, you've got a, I'll, I'll link to, I mean, everything I refer to in this video, I'll try to link to in the transcription. Uh, but um, you've got a great video on YouTube where you actually have um, all sorts of great visualizations of like pyramids and things like that. Uh, and a great explanation of kind of, you know, it, it's a bit sort of literally cartoonish, but a kind of old school way of doing things where the mm. kind of workers are at the bottom of the pyramid and they exist to serve uh, yeah. the masters at the top, but this agile revolution, uh, to, you know, one, one way of characterizing it is that the leaders should view themselves as servants of the people who are actually creating this stuff. Yes. Uh, so they still, the authority kind of still, the final authority still kind of is claimed by the, the CEO at the end of the day and the board and, and the, the C-suite generally. But yes. there's this view that instead of seeing, I've got this image that I've used on this on this podcast before of like, you can imagine an old like kind of, you know, just maybe from science fiction or whatever fantasy, but like an old salt mine in ancient Rome, you know, where there's guys with <laughs> whips at the bottom mm -hmm. of the pit. And then there's yes. guys with whips for the guys with whips further up the pit, the pit. And then, you know, at the very top yeah. is some guy in, I don't know, like a toga, uh, mm. you know, who, who's kind of in charge of it all. <laughs> and, and the idea was that, you know, you should, you, I sort of use this, this image deliberately because the idea is that a worker is someone who represents a problem that needs mm. to be, you know, you need to prevent them from escaping. You need, mm. you need to punish them in order to get them to work. Yeah. Uh, and they're and, a mission. They're a they are a machine that you need to keep on motivating. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and and negatively, uh, and mm. and and agile represents this this way of saying no, no, no. Like work should be a place that you what as a leader of a business, you you should make your business a place where people want to be. Yes, and you, and you should give them autonomy. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit. Um, so one thing, I guess I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself here. So I'll I'll, I'll pause on this for a moment. But one thing I wanted to ask you, um, because it comes up on this podcast a lot, is if you were starting out now in a career with the intention of you know 
maybe spending some time as a developer and then being a consultant, would you do a full computer science degree at university? Uh, <laughs> I think so. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I started developing myself. I started writing code. I wrote when I was 10. Uh, when I was 11, I wrote my first uh, text-based uh, RPG, RPG adventure. By the age of 12, I wrote my first text-based RPG adventure editor. So I believe I, I was a really, really good developer even before I started uh, computer science at university. But I did, I did learn all the math and all the, the foundation of it. So for me, it was worth it. But then again, I, I've got uh, through my career as a consultant because I have the luxury of meeting so many people uh, from all the places I visit and the companies I work with, and I met so many brilliant people without a formal university uh, degree. So yeah, I, I loved it myself, and I learned a lot, and I believe it helped me. But then again, I've been proving wrong. I've, I've seen the opposite as well really brilliant developers who become uh, technical leaders uh, within their company and even beyond without it. So, nah, that was a fluffy answer. No, no, that was, that was a, I thought that was a great answer. Um, uh, I particularly like that you sort of rooted it in your own experience. Uh, we've, I've, that, that happens a fair amount when I'm talking to people that uh, they talk about their first experience coding. And just, just for the record, um, if you could, could you let us know what your first computer was? Because uh, the, the answer, just, just you know, the answers to that question uh, have ranged from Jerry Weinberg saying, I was the first computer I had uh, <laughs> to, to, no, was, to a guy using it was like a, a calculator. It was a Commodore 6. No, actually, you're right. It was uh, the first thing I actually wrote some code on. No, it was a Commodore 64. Okay. And I started out with just copying programs. And by the end of a four hour long session, when I kind of just copied the text from a, a magazine, and once I finally hashed out all the commas and numbers that was wrong, I was rewarded with a balloon that bounced around. And in the beginning, I actually thought that the text I copied was like a, a wizard's spell. The balloon was always in the laptop or in the computer, sorry, or it resided in Commodore 64 or Mickey the Mouse or whatever, or the rocket. I just casted a spell to conjure that animation. But after a while, I figured out, no, actually, the, the thing I'm copying here is actually code that creates the balloon or whatever. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's curious. One of the reasons I asked the question about getting a computer science degree is so, you know, so many of the people that I interviewed had that experience of learning the way, the way you did. So from a magazine or something like that, and literally, literally for those listening who might not know, like a print magazine. <laughs> is, yeah, exactly. What we're talking about, like you'd, you'd have to get your parents to take you to a store maybe, and then you'd browse a stand and buy something that had a program typed out in it on, in print in ink. Uh, yeah. And then you would reproduce it on your computer at home. But but of course, nowadays, you can get all kinds of materials. I mean, there's all kinds of books, of course, on LeanPub. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's all kinds of videos. 
yeah. uh, and even one-on-one -on -one interactions and, you know, Stack Overflow and, and just the, the resources available are just incredible. And, and of course, not just the resources for, for sort of doing it, like for mm -hmm. learning, but for like the, the computers that we have now are also just incredible. And it does, it does make it a genuine conundrum, you know, if you're starting out a career in this area, what should you do? I guess you're, you're being part of founding a startup, right? So follow your passion. That's my advice. Uh, even if you do study or uh, find a really passionate project to work on, because when you're passionate, that's when you pour energy into something. And when you pour energy and time into something, that's when you become great. And uh, just before we get back to um, talking about Agile, and I'd like to talk to you about your time. I think you've been to, you've done a couple of stints at Spotify. Yeah. Uh, did you, I'm just looking at LinkedIn here. Did you also spend some time in New Zealand? <laughs> Yes, I did. I spent uh, uh, six months. So uh, it was kind of an MVP. Uh, me and my ex-girlfriend, wife, were trying to figure out if we actually wanted to move to New Zealand. Uh, so we decided let's try for six months. So yeah, I, I, I loved it. Uh, it's the single most beautiful country in the world. Uh, however, it's so freaking far away <laughs> and isolated. But it was beautiful. And there I worked with a huge, uh, uh, ambitious uh, large-scale agile transformation over one of the banks of New Zealand in Auckland. So that was really exciting. Oh, that's really interesting. I'd like to ask you about that. So uh, one of the um, challenges, so we, we, you know, we've, we've talked, we've already talked a little bit about agile. And one of the things that hap that uh, happens if you're a consultant in this world is agile transformation, mm. which is, mm. you know, there's a company that decides it wants to move from the sort of, let's just say the old, what, you know, the old top-down model to a little, mm. bit, little bit more of a bottom-up model. And that's a very challenging thing. Yes. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, I used to be a super cynical about the success rate of an agile transformation, especially if you're a huge company. Uh, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000, 20, 50,000 employees. Uh, but then again, there's more and more success stories uh, to be found around the world, but it's so super hard. If you have a company that's been around for 50 or 100 years, especially if you're a bank uh, or a similar, a similar business, and you're trying to transform from this hierarchical, bureaucratical uh, environment, a way of working, which is slow, but it is very safe. And if you're a bank, slow is good. Slow is safe. And and if you've been around for too long uh, as a company, the, the, all the structures, they get embedded in the walls, in the, in the people. It's, it becomes an entity of itself. So it takes enormous amount of perseverance and uh, commitment from all layers, especially the top, of course, uh, to do this. And you need to, I think, for it to be successful, you can't review it like just another process frame, framework you put on top of everything else. I've heard so many scary, scary stories about that. Yeah. They have their own, own way of working, and then they discovered ITIL and PM3 and whatnot, and they, then they discover SAFE, and they just, they just stack it all on top of each other. If you're doing that, you're nothing going to change. Uh, so I think, but if you want true change, you need to tackle it on every level, uh, both uh, organization, leadership, uh, culture, uh, behaviors, habits, uh, and yeah, yeah. So. It's, it's really interesting. One thing you've spoken about is how sometimes you know a, a new structure, which is basically people, can be brought into, can be created within a company in order to solve a problem, 
And then when that problem is solved, the structure remains behind. Yes, yes. I've seen that so many times. And so I, I'm very curious about that. So like, do people who are in positions like that know it? They know their value come, is derived from the work they do, right? So let's pretend that we invented a bureaucratic process to ensure ourselves of this or that clumsiness, right? And because that was a huge problem and then we needed a, maybe to hire someone and we gave that person a title and the company grew and that person became a department. So now we have <coughs> institutionalized. Yeah. How do you say it? Institutionalized, yeah. <laughs> Institutionalized the solution into hierarchies with roles and so on. And let's imagine me. I'm I'm a head of or a middle manager middle manager middle manager in that hierarchy. Obviously I want to still have a job tomorrow. So I'm gonna be opposed to any change to try to get rid of the structure I'm living in. Uh, I want to be valuable. I want to as a human person, I want to feel safe and I want to be appreciated. So hence, I'm going to protect the structure, whatever it is. So in that sense, it, the structure gets a life of its own. Yeah, it's really interesting. One, one thing that can be very important as well is how things can be kind of budget driven. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I've got this story I like to tell. It's kind of a sad story about a, a friend of mine whose you know career wasn't going so well, and he took a job as a product manager for a big IT project that was you know government government funded at one of these companies you know the, where they have these giant sad buildings mm -hmm. in you know nondescript company names, and he realized very quickly that there was nothing for him to do, and the reason he'd been hired was there was a budget. <sighs> which had a position, which, you know, had a position for a product manager. And the, 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 the sort of person who was at the top of this budget wasn't going to give up a part of their budget. And mm -hmm. the person who made the plan wasn't going to admit they made a mistake and they didn't need this person they budgeted for. And so yeah. they filled the spot with my friend. I think that's another example of how these structures becomes a thing of their own. I guess uh, somewhere along the line, they decided that, damn it, we're too big. We need to be in control of our money. And now we're going to split our money or the money we're going to spend this year by department or by manager. And so, hello, manager, here's your budget for you. Here's your pile of money. And by the way, if you don't spend it, you're going to come, you're going to get less money last year, mm -hmm. ne next year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter what they spend it on because their influence and, and power in some sense is directly linked to their budget so they need to spend it or they need to sell ideas that are worth bigger budgets for next year so nothing in this is uh, aimed at uh, employee happiness satisfaction customer happiness or anything like that uh, yeah it's 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 really interesting one um this this will sound maybe kind of silly but i remember there's there's a company uh here in canada called westjet and they were kind of well known one of the one of the things they became well known for was they empowered their workers in airports. So the person who, like you know, in the old days, would print out your ticket for you and and stuff mm -hmm. and and 
check you in. Those people had the power to do things like order pizza for customers if there was a flight delay. <clears throat> and, and, you know, it might, this might sound silly, but it was revolutionary, uh, <clears throat> particularly both from the perspective of the customer and from the perspective of the worker. The idea that this guy could just choose to do something kind of risky and that costs money on the fly to help people make money. And people, everybody loved it because it was empowering the people <clears throat> at the point of contact with customers to make decisions. And it, all, it sends another very strong message. Hello, you're employed and I trust you. I trust that you want to do a good job and I trust that you make responsible decisions. So if I have that freedom, I'm, I'm also feeling trusted to act responsible and trusted that I'm, I'm doing my best to do a good job. So there's some huge benefits of that approach. And uh, I know you wanted to ask me a little bit about Spotify later on. Or yeah, yeah, I have, sure, so, yeah. I have so many examples. I spent uh, together uh, four years all in all in two, uh, two different periods with a one and a half year gap in between at Spotify. And uh, there's so many stories to tell that because <laughs> there's yeah. no room in this podcast. But they, they really live by this. So they, they, they default to openness and transparency. That's one thing. And they also... Uh, default to trusting employees and they have so many active acts of trust so for example uh, well default to open is one they share every single uh, information uh, with everyone at the company so they went public last year right that uh or was it earlier this year no it was last year feels like uh, it wasn't that long ago just yeah just for a little bit of context so spotify for those who maybe don't know is this uh, very successful uh, music streaming service and it's ba it's based in Sweden, right? Yes, headquarters in founded and headquarters in Sweden. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's this huge success story, and it it sort of started very small, mm -hmm. uh, and is um, and is is well known in the sort of develop software development world for something called the Spotify model that is you know a, a beast of legend. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and you you you, I mean, I'm, I know you'll get a chance to talk about this that that there's there isn't really a sort of like hard and fast model. What there is is a bunch of principles. So anyway, with that with that context, you've had the fortune of being there a couple of times mm. to see this company, huge company, grow. Uh, yes, yeah. I, well, that was a luxury to be part of their journey. I wasn't there from the beginning when they were really small in one tiny office, but I think I joined when there were three, four hundred people, and uh, I ended my last engagement with them yeah, roughly a year ago. Uh, then they were four thousand. So they've experienced hyper growth for 10 years in a row, more or less, uh, 30, 40% growth in number of employees each year, <laughs> which is just That's crazy. Uh, cra it's crazy, really crazy. Uh, but re going back to the topic earlier about trust and transparency. So, so one, one, I think one reason they are successful with this is that they distribute ownership. They truly believe in autonomy. Uh, moving ownership and decision making to the teams that are working on the problem or working on the feature or working on the platform. Uh, that in itself is an act of trust, right? So the teams are hugely responsible for deciding what to do next and how to do it and so on, which uh, opportunities to pursue. Uh, every single person has access to or you used to at least when I when I ended ended my engagement there had access to production from day one. So if you wanted to, you could screw things up, and that happened. But when it happened, uh, you got celebrated for having the courage to try something, and 
people helped out to fix it. And so they have this, all these great acts of trust. Another act of trust is that if you think you need to fly from Stockholm to New York to visit the team, you just book the, just book the ticket in their system. Because if you think you need to travel, we believe you. Uh, they have, if you need a new keyboard or you've lost your cable or charger or whatever, each office has a, a desk, a self-service desk. So you just, you just go there and grab it. But in order for you to make a responsible decision, the price tag is, is next to it. So if you're thinking, oh, I need a new keyboard. I'm just going to take this one. And then you actually see the price tag. And then you might realize that, hmm, this was expensive. I'm going to have a second look <laughs> before I take a new one. Uh, so there's so many examples of active acts of trust, and that makes people motivated. They feel trusted. They feel appreciated. It's a super powerful thing. And there's something they have called a failure wall. Is that right? Yes. Uh, it's a yeah. It's a simple uh, flip chart or whiteboard uh, titled fa "Failure Wall," and it pops up uh, here and there. It's it's not a process or. Uh, and the fourth thing is just someone started doing it and it was fun and then it spread. So it keeps popping up and it lives for a few weeks or a few months and then it kind of fades away and then it pops up somewhere else. And the idea is simple. If you screw up, you accidentally send an email to everyone or you, I don't know, you uh, screw something up in production or you, yeah, whatever clumps in as you do. Uh, as a leader, as a developer, as a tester, whatnot, then you simply, you write to your, your your failure or your mistake on a post-it, you explain it to the people that happens to be around and you do a failure bow and then you are received with an applaud. <laughs> um, and the, the symbolism of this is, is very important because it, it signals that making mistakes is okay as long as you act responsible on them and you learn from them and you try to improve on it. Yeah, and this, this it's very interesting the way this uh, responsibility is kind of formalized and it's, there, there are, so you when you're working uh, at Spotify, you're part of a squad. That's kind of the lowest level of organization. Is that right? That's right. And can you explain a little bit about what a squad what a squad is? It's it's a it's a team. It's a scrum. No, it's an agile team. Uh, but it's they decided to call to call it something special. So they decided to name it squad. And it's a it clarifies even further what. The, the properties of that team. So it's five to seven, maybe 10 people co-located. They sit together in one room. They have a clear mission. It could be develop uh, Spotify for cars or speakers or improve the search algorithm or improve the way they, uh, the login experience. So they have a narrow uh, mission. Uh, so a user-facing uh, if possible, a user-facing journey that they are responsible for improving over time. Um, they are end-to-end, -end, so they should be able to deliver. They should be able to think, plan, execute, build, and deliver themselves. And once they have delivered it to production, they are also responsible for maintaining it and fixing problems as they occur. So they don't have hand over uh, the feature to a maintenance team or, whatever, uh, or anything. They are self-organizing, meaning that the teams, the people in the team, they are expected to figure out together how to collaborate, how to help out, who does what, in which order, and so on. Uh, and the squad sits together; they're co they're co-located. Right? Yes, that's a that, that's a built-in design principle of their uh, organization. So, 
Yes, uh, the members of the squad, they have actually a big room together, uh, whiteboard chairs, a lounge chair and so on, uh, TV, uh, maybe a, uh, a small booth where they can talk undisturbed on the phone or with a few people. Uh, several squads are grouped into an organizational unit called a tribe. And once again, the tribe is co-located. So when possible, there are exceptions, of course, uh, squads belonging to the same tribe, I guess, kind of department-ish thing. Uh, they are also co-located, so they sit on, together on the same floor in the same building. And is there another level of organization that kind of cuts across? Uh, I for, I'm forgetting the name. I think there's a, there's a, there's a name for it. But so you can you there. can have people in different squads who are all part yes. of the same group as well. Yes. I think I know what you're getting at here. So all work is done in squads, right? So uh, we collaborate, we build. There's no work done anywhere outside the squad. However, uh, the backend developers, for example, uh, in, in a tribe or the, the QA or Java developers, they, of course, want to share knowledge bet between people of common interest or common skill base. So that's when they have a chapter. So I'm... I, I do my work in a squad, I sit together and work with my squad, but I belong to a chapter. So maybe I'm a, I'm a back-end engineer, then I would belong to a back-end chapter. And that back-end that back chapter also has a chapter lead, which is my hiring manager. Oh, that's so that's how it plays out. That's really yeah. interesting. And, they, and so they've, Spotify has, has um, you know, one of the reasons I, I gather it's sort of a, a, a joke to talk about the Spotify model is that they've changed, they're changing all the time and <laughs> yeah. they've gone down different paths. And um, I'm, I'm forgetting, like, uh, there was this one path they went down where, that you talk about in a video where they um, had, like, quarterly targets or something yes. like that. And this, this like, failed dramatically as a model. Yeah. First time they did it. Uh... They struggled with it for a few years and then they gave up uh, because the whole company went into, went into kind of a death rattle with itself every end of quarter. But actually, they have, since two or three years now, they're doing OKRs again. It's a new twist. Uh, if you read the book on how OKRs should be used, <laughs> they're not doing that. So they're doing this kind of a simplified Spotify adopted version of it and they call it OKRs. So when I start explaining how they, how Spotify do OKRs to someone who is, I don't know, an OKR guru, they got, to, they get very upset. And this is objectives <laughs> and key results, by the way. Yes. So once, once every quarter, uh, each, uh, the squads and people within one, within uh, each tribe get together and through various uh, collaborative workshops, uh, they agree upon what ambition do we set for ourselves uh, this quarter and what specific uh, smart, measurable uh, goals uh, should we set for ourselves? That's the key results. And this has been working out really well for them, actually. For the, so this is for the first time they've got the, uh, an alignment process uh, that works for them. Uh, but this is enough. They also have something they call Spotify Rhythm uh, on top of this, uh, which uh, dictates what are the company's top 10 most important priorities right now. Uh, so all tribes need to align their work and ambitions towards those uh, company bets. That's, and those Yeah, that that's really that's a really interesting concept. So um one one thing that, you know, someone coming from a sort of more conventional management or, you know, working background might think is like all this empowering of people at the level of product creation sounds mm. sounds great, but 
can it potentially lead to chaos? And the answer is yes. But one of the ways of and so you you, you talk very very uh, clearly about how there's a cost. All of this all of this great stuff doesn't come for free, and the mm. the price you pay is communication. Yes. And so having say ten very clear goals that everybody knows uh, is really important. And we'll get down to the level of visualization. You know, the the at the and when I say down, I mean that's going to getting to where things really matter. But at the top, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek, he um he talks directly to the whole company routinely. Yes, that's another great uh, thing they're doing. And I'm amazed that they, not just him, but the whole C-suite. So roughly every sixth week, roughly, so two or three times every quarter, they have all hands on town halls and big gatherings uh, where every single employee is invited. So they have this yeah, the talk on stage and about the big news, about maybe a new company bet, or they celebrate the finished company bet, or they, they have a topic, or the year in review, or whatnot. But the most baffling thing about that event is that mm-hmm. they use roughly the last 20 minutes, it varies, but usually one hour-ish, and then the last 20 minutes is a Q&A. Every single person in the whole company can submit a question uh, in an app, and uh, then everyone else can vote, thumb vote on those questions. And when it's time for Q&A, they reply to as many questions as they can, starting from the ones with most likes. And so the, the five, seven, eight-ish C-suite people on stage, they do their best to provide the best possible, most honest answer to each and every question. question. And this creates a fantastic direct dialogue with the C-suite and 5,000 employees. And as I understand it as well, at least at least at one time, Daniel Ek was actually writing these long email replies mm. to questions that were submitted through 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 some kind of some kind of app as well. Yeah, that's a slightly different story. But yes, any unreply any unreplied uh, question they get on uh, in the Q and A, they do reply to together so the following week week or something. Yes. Yeah. No. That's that's just that's so so great to uh, to hear about you know that how how it's not you know like I mean of course it's all coming from a place of goodwill but how you know this 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 sort of theoretical importance that this kind of communication has for efficient and productive management of a company. Um, mm. One thing I wanted to ask you about specifically because you wrote a post about a blog post about it recently was the leadership health check. Mm, yeah. Which I believe came from the squad health check that you learned about at Spotify. Yeah, so I was working in this tribe in this department and the leadership team. Uh, so in the tribe, there were the tribe of 60. There were maybe tw- actually 15 or 20 people that had some kind of leadership or management manager title. Uh, and we wanted to figure out how we can improve. And someone said, what? Wait a second. We're, we're having the squads do the squad health check once or twice a year, sometimes more often. Can't we do something similar? So inspired by the squad health check, uh, we developed a leadership health check. So it's a set of questions. Uh, do you have fun at work? Uh, are you having healthy conflicts? Uh, is there a clear vision of where you're going? Do you feel that you are aligned? Uh, so there's all these aspects of collaborating as a leadership team. So we did that and it was brilliant. And then later on, I developed this further, further and then uh, used this at my the client I worked with after that, and uh, to great success. 
so that's when I realized that this is too good. So <laughs> this needs to be shared. <laughs> so then I wrote a blog post about it. And I think that when I uh, promoted it on LinkedIn, that became my single most shared uh, LinkedIn article. <laughs> Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. The idea is that you get, um, I mean, you get leadership together to mm. uh, within a meeting, and you have a someone is nominated the facilitator, and mm. then you, you have these steps that you go through where you basically everybody gets a chance to report on yes. on how they feel, basically, and and but and not just how they feel, but like how things are going. Yeah. Now there's so many great, interesting discussion that uh, comes from this. But one question is, for example, what's your stress level? The, do you feel you have plenty of time? Do you have the energy to react to fires? Or do you feel like you're constantly firefighting, never had time to think ahead, and so on? And people obviously have different experiences, right? So some might vote green. Yeah, I'm good. Others might vote red. And that's when you have a really interesting discussions. Or even, even, even more interesting, do you believe, do you feel that uh, you have a clear vision that guides you in your prioritization. <laughs> if someone votes green and another one votes red, <laughs> well, you have something to talk about. So there's no right and wrong, but they're obviously perceiving reality differently. And if you want to work together as a team, as a tight leadership team, well, you need to sort those those things out. It's really interesting that you're reminding me of something. Um, I forget which which blog post or, or maybe it was even in one of your books, but um, there was this one sort of, I, I guess there was this maybe a set of, a set of squads that were doing health checks. Uh, and one, the, the resources that were devoted afterwards were focused on the team that reported the sort of most unhappiness and, mm. the, and the team that reported the least unhappiness because it was discovered that the team that recorded the least unhappiness was the most recently formed team yeah. and probably yeah. wasn't assessing itself correctly. <laughs> no, they were in the, the hundred on face where you or people typically don't really speak their true mind <laughs> and it's a super superficial harmony and happiness so no so so the important thing when you do these kinds of he uh, checks or service or evaluations is not just st stare yourself blind at the colors or numbers it's the actual discussions that they produce that's where the value is so I can even argue that it's not really worth the time to track progress over time because of factors like this. The true value comes from, from the discussions, from the insights and the actions people want to carry out afterwards. So the agreements and the actions and the commitments that spur from these discussions, that's, that's the true value. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, it's not, it's not my field, but I'm a, I'm a huge skeptic of um, people who I'm a huge skeptic of placing too much objective kind of being onto projecting too much objective being onto data. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, people often think that if there's, if there's, if they see numbers or if the words like data are used, then there's sort of, as it were, nothing to see here, folks, it's all straightforward and worked out when actually, actually, you know, it can all be uh, an illusion mm. uh, and, and not refer to reality at all. Uh, just before we go on to um, your books, um, I wanted to ask you about a working agreement. Uh, mm. This was a new concept to me uh, that I came across in uh, one of your recent posts, and I was wondering if you could talk about that. What's, what, is, what is a working agreement? A working agreement is a, a set of bullets that the team agrees upon, and the bullets describe what behaviors do we want to see in each other. It becomes kind of our code of conduct. 
So it's a summary of when we collaborate, when we communicate, both face to face, but uh, sometimes there's there's a lot of communication going on through comments in tools and Jira or Slack or or email and whatnot. So when we communicate and when we collaborate, how do we want to treat each other? What's important for us? And in the blog post you refer to, I I present a, a workshop guide for how you can do it. There's tons of different ways. That's just my way. And by the end of this one and a half, two hours session, you typically have a bullet list of 10, 15, 20 bullets that describe things you value. And it could be simple things like uh, if you're late, if you know you're going to be late to a meeting, uh, let the team know. But it could also be more profound values such as don't silently disagree, speak your mind. Or... uh, don't use sar- sarcasm in when you comment on other people's code because it's so easily misinterpreted. It could be things like uh, we give each other feedback uh, often and frequently, and we and we love it. So it can be on all all levels. It what whatever the, the team feels feel is important to bring up, and the value of actually doing this explicitly is that each and every bullet you don't add a bullet to this working agreement unless everyone likes it to be there so you have a voting with your thumbs and unless all the thumbs are up it doesn't go in there then it's left out for a discussion later so by the end of this workshop you know that all these 15 bullets bullets that are on our working agreement we all commit we did all commit to those bullets and that allows me to hold my friends accountable for their behaviors Right, and that's See, because, I, that's because voting thumbs up doesn't just mean like I think this is a good idea. It means like I can I can actually satisfy the condition. Yes, I believe I'm capable of honoring this, uh, and that's a true power. Because once you've got that written down, then you can start giving proper feedback, hold each other accountable for their actions and behaviors, and you have something to improve improve from. So now you have the foundation, and next time you have a retrospective or a team meeting, uh, you can discuss how can we improve our working agreement further so no I, I think it's a super powerful tool that all people that want to work really good with their team should should take time to to draft and design yeah well thanks thanks very much for that great explanation and again i'll make sure i'll make sure to link to the to the post and the transcription um moving on i'd like to talk about uh your visualization examples book um mm. uh, and so what i really enjoyed reading it one thing it made me realize was how little information was ever on display in any of the sort of conventional workplaces i've worked in um mm. and I mean, I've I've come across and and in some work I've done in in uh, on other projects outside of LeanPub, uh, you know, the idea of uh, things like Kanban um, and visualization. So there's all kinds of ways of visualizing work. For those listening, you know, one way, and I'll I'll just quote um, from from the book is you can quote use boxes, lines, rows, and columns to describe your workflow in which states uh, work transitions between. End quote. So you can imagine, you know, you can have an in and people can in an office there might be a wall dedicated to visualization. The, visualizing the work that people are doing uh and the standard thing one well not the standard thing but one very sophisticated approach is to have it, it sounds 
it sounds like it's not very sophisticated, but it is, is to use post-it notes. And, and I learned from your book, post-it notes, don't use the cheap knockoffs, <laughs> uh, but you can have, and the post-it notes can be different colors, which can represent different kinds of things. I've interviewed uh, uh, Alberto Brandolini about, about this, I believe was another <laughs> lean pub author. Um, and, and, and then you can have various columns that things move. You can imagine things moving from left to right, from sort of, you know, proposed to completed. And then you can do all sorts of interesting things. And we'll talk about, about a number of those different things that that you talk about in your book that can get creative but the, the sort of fundamental idea is that there's more to visualization than as it were just this and you have this great line where you talk about how in front of these walls you might want to think about say using tape or something to make a little box uh, for people to stand in <laughs> Uh, and you say, I found that for some strange reason, people like to stand inside boxes. And it's it's funny because this is actually the, the tip of an iceberg of what how you can sort of visualize your work. You can use visible, tangible things in your workplace to transform it, um, including lava lamps, for example. This is just it's just such a charming idea that um, you can have, like, say, a green lava lamp and a red lava lamp. And they can actually be connected to your your product, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that if 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 like you you know you know red can indicate uh oh you know the website's down or mm-hmm. so, or something like that, and and you can actually see this light change. So I wanted I just wanted to ask you about a few of these um, ideas that you set out in your book. One of which is dotting. Can you talk a little bit about what dotting is? Dotting. Oh yeah, that's a really simple thing. Uh, so yeah, imagine you have post-its moving through columns, like just like you described. So they 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 move from proposed to planned to doing, review and done, maybe. And if you're working in an agile team, uh, what you typically do is you meet in front of this visualization board of your work every single morning at nine o'clock or something, and you talk about uh, what work do we need to move push forward today? What should we collaborate on? Dotting is the technique of at the end at the end of every daily meeting, you put a you take a sharper or whiteboard marker and you put a dot on each post-it that is in the uh, doing column. So if a post-it accumulates two, three, five dots, then you should be suspicious. Is is actually someone working on this one? Uh, is someone stuck? Do they need help? Is it blocked? Are we waiting for something? So this simple act of dotting helps the team become aware of the progress of work. If we're stuck or not, do we need to act? And another brilliant thing is that, I don't know why, uh, I've introduced this so many times, and I've never ever said that a dot is a bad thing. <laughs> but for some reason, people hate hate it when, they're, when their post-its are being dotted. <laughs> they don't want it. But no, 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 I, I didn't do anything today. Please don't dot it. I'm, I'm not counting your work. I'm counting days in progress. So just calendar days. There's no value. I don't, I don't put the value in the dot itself. But what people tend to do is they try to finish what they started. So I always prefer that. Don't start new things. Uh, finish what you started first. That's one thing. And they also tend to break work down into smaller pieces. And when you do that, you tend to find simple solutions and it's easier to, to see progress and get a sense of a forecast and so on. So 
that simple thing drives so many great behaviors. It's really, it's really interesting. Yeah. Because the, the, one of the things you can visualize is, you know, not just the, the tasks that are being done, but who's working on them as well. And mm. the thing you talk about is, you know, having little avatars. So mm. you, know, you might have a little disc with your face on it or, you know, a cartoon character that you like in your name. Uh, mm. And then anybody, it's just so interesting. Cause when you think about walking to a normal office, it's like, who's doing what? I don't know. All I know is that they're sitting in front of a computer probably. Uh, yes. But with these boards, you can see with avatars on them, you can see what the person is working on, mm. where, where they're jammed up, what they've, what they've completed recently. Um, and, and that is, that is the true power of visualization. I think it, it creates a shared reality. Uh, in most offices, as you mentioned, there are no whiteboards. There's no way of telling what's going on, who's working on what, what's the progress, what's important now and so on. You actually need to go around and ask people. But if you, ha if you manage to figure out the visualization and with columns and rows and whatnot, with post-its that that's useful, then the team working on that or the project uh, working on that with that, that's become, that becomes their reality. So when they need to discuss options or decisions or make plans, short-term or mid-term plans, they meet in front of that whiteboard because that is their shared reality. Uh, and it becomes tangible and not, yeah, not something abstract. And I think that's the true power. Yeah, and also, when designing this visualization, they have to agree upon the process itself. Because that, that's a weird thing when you go to when you visit a workplace and you ask someone, well, how does this process works? And then you ask someone else, you're going to get a different answer for every single person you talk to. They're going to perceive the process or rules differently. But when you actually put them together and ask them, please visualize together how the process looks like, they're going to learn that they have different opinions about what's what's real and how it should be or not shouldn't be and they're forced to agree upon uh, a collaborative way of working so it reveals the discrepancies in in people's different belief of how, how how it is and one of the really interesting things is that you can visualize sort of like there's 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 just so much so much that can be visualized in a workspace that conventionally is not mm. for example what kind of work a person is doing so normally if you walk into if you walk into a room and say an open plan office and you see you see a bunch of people in front of their computers but you know one person might be on facebook you know someone else might be really deep in in really deep work and um one way you have a visualizing this is called a flow glass oh yeah uh Quite often I encounter teams that says, uh, or people, engineers typically, developers, that says sometimes I don't want to be disturbed. So uh, how about we, in our team, we have a rule. If I'm wearing my headphones, you're not allowed to disturb me. Disturb me. But how would I know if you're just chilling with music or if, you're, if it's intentional, right? Uh, other teams have, if I have my Star Wars puppet on my monitor, then you're not allowed to disturb me. But how can I know if you actually put it there intentionally or if it's been around there for three days and you just forgot about it? But if you have an hourglass, uh, a physical hourglass, and the sand is running inside it, then I know that you intentionally declare that I need to focus. I don't want to be disturbed. You flip the hourglass, and if I try to approach you and see that the sand is halfway through, then I can make maybe make a decision to take a step back and come back after 30 minutes. So it's a, it's a super simple uh, way of signaling to others that please don't disturb me right, right now because I want to focus. Uh, 
the next thing I wanted to, to talk to you about is a, a lot of um, a lot of the things that you write about in your book struck me as uh, ways to make the workplace a, a place that's happy and celebratory. And one of the things you you talk about is release credits. Yeah, that's one. Of, yeah, that's a good example. So release credits. Uh, so one team I worked with, uh, we started having the habit of every second week when the iteration, the sprint uh, closed down, we took five, 10 minutes and we just uh, chaotically wrote on post-its things we were proud of from the last two weeks. And we had different colors. So one color meant we shipped something to our users. Another col color indicated something internally with, within our team. Yeah, so they have different the colors of meaning. And then the bigger the post-it, the, the more proud we felt about it. So the tiny post-it was, yeah, this happened. A huge post-it, A5 size maybe, uh, meant this is super brilliant. So it was one one simple and great technique to uh, celebrate your own achievements and build build a sense of pride. But there's so many more uh, things you can do to to do this because usually usually you're so focused on work and the next problem that you rarely take time to celebrate the hard work you're pouring into it. Uh, so com this is a way to create a sense of pride, but also communicating to others uh, what we are doing and what we what we have achieved. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, and the and the idea is, you know, from movies, uh, you know, at the end mm. when you finish a movie, there, I mean, most people leave, but there are these credits, unless it's a Marvel movie and you're going to get some kind of Easter egg or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, but you know, you know, at the end of movies, you celebrate you the the work that people have done, and you say say their name and what they did. Uh, mm. And when a project is completed in an office, what's what's to prevent you from putting something up celebrating yeah. what you've done? I've seen a few teams that have, have the luxury of having a really great designer with Photoshop uh, magician skills, and he or she created a movie poster after each sprint, and so it was a kind of a characterized movie poster with the title being related to the work or whatever. So it's only internal jokes, but, but still that, that's another way of cre creating uh, pride and celebrating. Um, but I want to add that uh, you're, you're, you're kind of referring to these ideas as, as my ideas. Uh, they're not, <laughs> I've been collecting visualization ideas for many, many years. So I think, 80% of the stuff I, I write about in my book uh, is things I've seen somewhere, someplace. And I thought it was, was worthy of being shared outside that place. Okay, I'll, I'll try and make sure to uh, qualify my representation of them so I don't attribute other people's inventions to you. Uh, but, but I, did, I, mean, I guess I'm just sort of naively, I learned about them from your book, so they must have been by you. Uh, one of the, and there's this, this great physicality to the examples that you, that you describe, um, one of which is the concept cubes. Hmm. So, yeah, sometimes you want to convey information. So you've agreed upon something or you want to convey information or you want to teach something. One way is, of course, to create a PowerPoint or write an email or you create something tangible that you can pick up from the table. So a concept cube. So imagine a big, big dice. Uh, I don't know, uh, one decimeter cubed, 10 centimeters cubed. And you write your stuff on the sides of that dice. And it could be you could have it, you could have the working agreement. You can have the definition of done. You can have good programming uh, practices or whatnot. Uh, and the beautiful thing about this is that it's a it's a physical thing that 
lays around in your in your office in your team room and it just begs to be picked up and read uh, so yeah i've used it a few times uh, to great success i love it it's, i haven't seen it much but those times i've seen it it's it's been really fun people play with it read it pick it up yeah and speaking and, of, speaking and, and of, create their own and yeah. speaking of dice you actually talk about dice uh you've got examples of people using dice in the workplace uh to um for example uh activity dice so you know if mm. if during a daily stand-up and a stand-up is, is this idea of a, a meeting where no one's sitting down to try and make it briefer than it might be otherwise but one thing mm. you can do is you can have let's say a set of six different things that you would typically do you know during a during daily stand-up but you would only do them once you know what this might be the theme of the stand of each particular stand-up and so you roll dice to decide what to do that day and it yeah, and introduce this joyful kind of slight randomness to what you're doing yeah and there's another use of a dice where you you say every wednesday you roll it and the dice will tell you a joint activity so clean up your area or have a joint lunch or go for a jog together or something and then i in New Zealand, I, I discovered yet another way to use a die. Uh, so this te- that team happened to be six people. So they rolled the die and the die presented a name. And that that person with that name be- became today's awesome person. And he or she got a hug and an applaud. <laughs> Nothing more. Just, just silly and fun. <laughs> Yeah, and, um, on, yeah, that, there's just so many great examples. Another one is, I, I don't know why this was my favorite one, probably because it's just so right, but um, you write, dropping balls in tubes is a fun way to visualize data. <laughs> yeah. Of course, as soon as I read, of course it is. And so uh, one thing you can do is you can have people kind of vote on things or express some information about mm. something by setting up these different tubes with different labels of them and then again giving people like no balls to drop in a version of the dotting to some extent. Yeah, it could, could be anything, right? So instead of sending out a survey or asking people to tally vote on post-its, you can have plastic tubes which you pour in uh, plastic balls or ping pong balls in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just so so fun, and it's it's again it's 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 I wanted I wanted to, like before we got to the fun, I wanted to do the heavy lifting to make it clear that you know this these this is all about community. It's it's a lot of it is about mood. Uh, and mm. the workplace an enjoyable place to be where you're empowered and all that uh, uh, but a, the real but a, another very serious layer of it is about it's about communicating uh, yes. and that in these empowered sort of in, in, in an empowered agile workplace communication is it like you make you make it fun through these kinds of examples but it's it's the price you're paying uh for that empowerment and autonomy i would like to add one aspect many of the examples i provide in the book also helps to shape new habits so as a team, you might decide that let's keep the daily stand-up shorter or let's uh, pair up and collaborate more often or you're trying to create a new habit. So having a visualization for that uh, can help you make that habit stick. So, so in one sense, uh, visualizations can be a great driver for improvement as well. Um, moving on to the last part of the interview, um, where we talk about your work uh, as a cre- as a creator. Um, so you've got you do you do seminars and videos and things like that, but you also do books. Um, yes. And I was wondering, uh, I've got a few questions. My first question is, what attracted you to use LeanPub as the platform for your books? I got it recommended, but I can't re- recollect from whom uh, many years ago, and uh, found a few books. And then when I Eventually got the energy uh, and the idea to write this one, the visualization examples. It, it was obvious for me that this is the platform. 
because I, I love the platform, uh, the reach, uh, the ease of reaching out and for people to download them and even buy. So I love the whole ecosystem you've created. But in ten, uh, in the, yeah, so that's yeah, that's how I found it. Okay, okay, and and you you had a really interesting process. So you had for creating this book. So it was uh, the visualization examples book was on Google Drive. Yes, correct. yes. Uh, initially, when I first got the inspiration, I asked to open Google Word, uh, sorry, Microsoft Word, and I started typing, and I just wanted to try out a few pages and how it felt like. And then I sent it out to my colleagues uh, asking for feedback. And I practically got none. And one of them said, well, it's impossible to give you feedback on a on a PDF. This is, this is crap. I, I have tons of feedback. But unless you convert it into a format where it's easy for me to give you feedback, I won't, I won't give it to you. <laughs> so what do you want? Well, for example, Google Drive. It's easy to market text and add a comment. Uh, I didn't like that because that, that meant I had to redo work. So I kept on writing and then I was up to 20 pages. But then I actually started to rethink <laughs> because hmm, I'm an agile coach. I preach uh, iterative development. I preach uh, fast feedback. I preach uh, get have co close dialogue with your customers and users. So, okay, fine. I'll, <laughs> I'll move to Google Docs and I did. So I copied the things I've done so far. And I used Google Slides, which is Google's version of PowerPoint, which allowed me to do more uh, visual design as well. So, uh, yeah, I wrote the book there. And then uh, pretty quickly after that, I even wrote a blog post about me writing the book uh, and invited everyone who wanted to be part of me writing that book to uh, access the document. So, I, yeah, I wrote the book publicly online, which was a scary thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you were lucky, you would actually see me typing, correcting, erasing, adding paragraphs and so on live. And people were and they <laughs> I think at one point I have, I don't know, 500 people asked for access to it until maybe more, seven, eight hundred people of which a sliver, maybe 10 percent actually helped me out with. Uh, fixing the grammar, improving spelling, making chapters more clear, pointing out confusions or what's going on here. I don't get it. Can you write this in a simpler way? And they even proposed uh, some uh, examples, which I later on added. So from being something scary, meaning I just I published my work as I'm creating it, right? Usually I imagine... Authors want to get it perfect, polish it before they present it to the world for judgment. Because feedback is a scary thing. So that was scary in the beginning, but then, then it became a life of its own. So it almost became a community where the contributors or the, the people commenting, they started having chats about what not. So the, the, the discussions derailed into other things because it was brilliant. And it also gave me a push to move on. So I had I already had a fan club that helped me and uh, encouraged me to to move on. So that, no, I, I loved it, and I'm I'm actually writing a new book the same manner. Uh, right now, it's been on hold for six months, but I will continue after summer, I think. That's um, really that's a really great story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, you know, one the the experience that you're describing is kind of you know one of the reasons Lean Pub exists. 
Mm. Uh, and but I think yours is the first story I've heard of someone who you know may have been sort of where where they were writing and people could have seen it live yes. uh, if, if they sort of happened to be there at the right at the right time. But but one thing one thing that many people who we've talked to over the years have discovered is that it, the the right reader wants to help you. Yes, they want to help you. They they feel good about it. It's not like they they don't feel like you're taking work from them or something like that. They're they're you know they they want to contribute. Uh, hmm. They want to help improve it. You know, one it's it sounds it's it might sound kind of trivial, but like there's kind of as a as a devoted as a reader of something, there's nothing more. I don't know, it, it, not exactly exciting, but like it's very fulfilling to find a typo and tell the author and have them correct it. <laughs> you know, almost almost in real time. No, I experienced that too. So, so some of the people helping out, they were really passionate and they were well, several times a week. They checked in to see if I've written something new and they helped me improve it. And and of course, I, I've added acknowledgments to those who con contributed the most in, in the book as well. So it was really fun to uh, give it back. So no, I, I love that process, even though it was scary in the beginning. And I made a couple of decisions. One was not to go with the uh, publisher because I just I just wanted to get it written and out there if you go with a public publisher you're going to get their feedback which you have to act on they're going to take on in some cases they take over the creative control you you want to have and so on so I, I just wanted this to be good enough for to be released so that was one thing and then I, I didn't want it to be perfect I, I wanted to feel playful and fun but the one, one thing that's really scared me in the beginning, if I'm actually writing my book online, will anyone bother to buy it once it com once it's completed? Because if I'm right, if, if people have access to the next page I'm writing all the time, what's the point of writing the buying the whole the full book? They already read it, but that turned out to be wrong. <laughs> uh, so the, those who were involved and saw the progress, they, they were my my promoters. They they were the ones who told their friends and yeah yeah, yeah it, it's really interesting one one version of that experience that we've seen over and over again is um people might make their minimum price so lean pub books can be have two prices set for them a minimum, mm. a minimum and a suggested price you can set the mm. minimum price to zero and but then you can have a suggested price of ten dollars or whatever and uh, one thing we've seen over and over again is people who get a book like that for free and then they're like hey i want to pay for it now now that now they're now that i've read it i want to pay for it ah but you don't have that feature we don't we don't we don't have that feature yet but what we do is we tell we we have a workaround which is just buy a new copy and then archive one, <laughs> yeah, one, well, you, can, you can archive one of the two copies that you have and then you know in, yeah. in your library so it, you don't see two uh so it's yeah. a little bit it's a bit of a workaround eventually we will have that uh but but yeah we i mean you know it's and it's sort of it's sort of it's the inversion of an old prejudice that we have mm -hmm. about the marketplace and and money that mm -hmm. if someone can get something for free then they'll never pay for it and it's just it's just not true no so the, no, the fun, the, what, one thing that surprised me is that some people decide to pay even more for the LeanPub version than the physical copy. I actually sell the phys a physical copy of the book on Amazon as well. Uh, uh, but some people choose to pay more for the, the digital PDF version, which I can't hold it in my hands. <laughs> but they, so they, I guess they, it's their way of showing appreciation. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's funny, just this is this, to me, uh, 
I mean, I love I love physical books uh, as much as the next you know guy with a doctorate in English literature. But uh, but um, in many ways, an ebook is is far more valuable than uh, I mean, in, like in, 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 if you could say to someone, this book will take up no space, and mm. you can read it anywhere at any time. Mm. Uh, you know, that sounds like a magic book. Uh, and one you might, you might, you know, you, you know, you know. I guess you, you can probably get a sense of what I'm sort of clumsily getting at, which is if you describe <laughs> some of the. Imagine you have a book you can search. It's yeah. Like, who wouldn't pay for that? You know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I agree. But anyway, uh, but but of course we all know that it costs nothing to produce a digital copy of something, which is why we we don't see it as being worth as much. But uh, one, so this is where we get very much into the weeds. So you've used our bring your own book feature, which is what we would, what we, we built to honor the fact that every author has their own process and they might not all want to use the processes that we provide. And so how do you produce your PDFs? <laughs> this, this is super simple. This is embarrassing. So uh, I, I write the first version on Google slides uh, online. Uh, so that's not the best layout too. So once I've, once I've done, I copy paste the text into a, a slightly better tool, Microsoft PowerPoint, because I'm a PowerPoint magician through all my seminars and trainings. So I do my layout uh, of the book in PowerPoint. And then in PowerPoint, there is a function that says print to PDF. <laughs> So that's that's how I create my PDF. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that's embarrassing at all. That's uh, that you know every, anyone any process that you have that 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 works for you is is the right one. Um, and yeah. uh, and everyone has their own things that they're tools that they're good at and that they enjoy using. Yeah, uh, but... and, and so you know some people you know just want to write in Google Docs. Some people you you know we we've, we've we've had authors use PowerPoint to produce books before. Mm. One of our one of our best-selling books is has a million words in it and it was made in microsoft word and the the author you know hints export as pdf and hmm. so that's how he produces his <laughs> whatever um, whatever works yeah but, but when i explain that i'm i'm using powerpoint for uh, the, the, the design and layout uh, or graphical designers or, or uh, people who work with print they get very upset <laughs> but i like it it looks it's simple and nice and playful yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and actually, so one thing I want to ask you about is your book has been translated into five or six different languages already. Um, yeah, maybe even more. How did, how did that come about? Did people approach you or did you approach other people? No, uh, people reached out to me. Uh, so they find, found me on LinkedIn or found out my email. And no, so no. Uh, so people reached out and I have the same deal with everyone. That seems to be good enough because I have more translations on the way. So I just tell them that, yes, thank you for reaching out. I would love your help to translate uh, this book to your language. And we, we simply split the, the Lean Pub profit 50-50. Uh, the only request I have is that once you've done, uh, once you've completed your translation, you send it out to four reviewers, uh, not friends, but colleagues in your business in your country and you act on the feedback acting means <laughs> disregarding or correcting but you need to you need to consciously go through the feedback and once you feel you've done that then we then we publish it on Lipo. and uh my last question about your books is you're so they're full of illustrations mm -hmm. uh, and these illustrations have words in them so did you have to redraw illustrations to accommodate different languages <sighs> yeah i've done that twice i'm not going to do that again 
And when, when writing my new book, <laughs> uh, it has also a lot of illustrations, but um, I've learned the hard way that don't draw text, add text afterwards in PowerPoint. So it's easier to translate. So no, I've, I've, I've read, I've read drawn the text twice and it was just too much work. <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to do that again. Yeah. I sort of double checked to see if you'd done it. And I think it may have been a Spanish translation. And I was like, wow, that, if that <laughs> happened, that must've been a ton of work. And I don't know. I don't even know Spanish. Right. So right. Yeah. <laughs> it took forever. Yeah. I bet. I bet. <laughs> uh, so the, the last question I always like to ask uh, people on this podcast is, um, if there was one thing we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you, is there anything you can think of that you would ask us to do? Yeah, but this is a big one. Uh, I would love the thing I achieved with uh, writing in Google Slides, meaning that uh, people can simply, can simply access, they can request access to the document and, and they can see me writing it and they can add comments to pictures or text. But this is not a simple fix, right? This is a huge uh, ask. But I would love to be able to do what I did on the LeanPub platform because uh, it was so much fun and it, I think it tripled the quality of my book. And it could, if that could be integrated into the tool set and platform that would be i would love that but that's not a simple thing i no, do realize that no that's well that's you know that's 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 great to hear that i mean you know uh, helping publishing books in progress and getting feedback early on is one of the reasons mm. we exist and sort of facilitating that kind of collaboration is part of our big part of our big yes. vision as you say it's it, i mean it's hugely complex to do um one way we've accommodated that is that actually i don't know if you know this but we have a google docs writing mode now um it's it's our most recent writing mode so what you can do is you can create a book in google drive in a folder in google well what you do is you create a book on leanpub and then we mm -hmm. we automatically set up a folder in your google drive with some template Google Docs in it. And then you can actually write your LeanPub book in Google, using Google Docs in this folder in Google Drive, and then just click, click to preview and publish right from there. And so that way with Google Docs, and so this is not Google Slides, but, mm -hmm. but we actually already enable you to use Google Docs to do, to do this. So you can get all the benefits of the collaboration you're describing and still be hooked into LeanPub and generate PDF, EPUB and Mobi and, and all that kind of stuff. I didn't know, that's brilliant. Yeah, we're still we're we're pretty excited about it. I mean, we're still like sort of you know people are still kicking the tires that kind of thing. But we've had a couple <laughs> of books made from it, and uh, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, this this idea of of having the book kind of live for people to comment on and see changes in is something that we're really excited to see. And also, it's it's uh, I mean you know tooting our own horn, but like it's pretty magical if you if you mm -hmm. know how to use Google Drive and Google Docs. Uh, the idea that you can write your you can produce your book. On, and have it for sale, like an updated version in a bookstore by clicking a button. Yeah. Using a Google Docs add-on, is like pretty pretty amazing. So we're really excited to see to see where that goes. Well, uh, thank you very much for that feedback. Um, uh, thank you very much for taking the time uh, out of your evening to to talk to me on, and to everyone listening on this podcast. And thank you for using LeanPub and being a LeanPub author. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please visit our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.